Welcome to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have an accomplished writer of both short stories and novels. She skillfully navigates through the subgenres of horror, showcasing her versatility and mastery. She's joining me today to discuss her four-book epic dystopian series entitled Fractured. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Marie Lanza. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me on this 21st day of December 2023. I first got a taste of your writing in the short story collection House of Haunts, for which I've had you on the podcast previously. And as I was doing some research for the previous episode, I found that you had a four book series for a dystopian story called Fractured. And dystopian is one of my favorite genres, so I read the first book, and it did not disappoint. The story was devastating, dark, action-packed, and used actual events to enhance the terror of your fictional hellscape. So I really enjoyed it, and I'm excited to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you enjoyed book one. Yes, and speaking of books, it's such a refreshing sight to see that backdrop of the uh, <laughs> the massive bookshelves behind you. <laughs> Thank you. I do love my books. Well, so the book is about a woman named Harmony who starts her day with her morning run alongside her dog, Mayhem. However, everything changes in an instant when she looks out on the horizon at the L.A. city skyline and sees a huge column of black smoke. She immediately rushes back home to turn on the news and discovers that the reason given for the chaos is a violent riot that has erupted on Skid Row. And this doesn't exactly align with what Harmony and her boyfriend Dan would consider within the realm of possibility. And as it turns out, the cause is a virus which turns people into, for all intents and purposes, zombies. And one of the theories mentioned for the riots before the knowledge of the virus was made known was the use of bath salts and not the uh, Bed Bath & Beyond variety. The, uh, the, uh, not the fun kind. No, the, well, some would argue the, this is the fun <laughs> kind. It just depends on your idea of partying. Yeah. <laughs> 
But in the story, you mention a real incident that happened in Florida where a homeless man purported to be under the influence of bath salts, which is kind of hard to pin down, I think, because I don't know that it shows up in any sort of drug screen or toxicology, but that's what he was purported to be under the influence of. Chewed a chunk? I don't know how much of this other homeless man's face off, which is pretty intense. So, was the real event the springboard for the story? And if not, what was? Well, so that event happened to a homeless man, the real life event. Mm -hmm. And that happened in 2012 when I was already writing this. And so the piece that you're talking about in the book is like the opening first pages of the novel. But like, how much inspiration can you get from the news? I remember when that story came out and they were so graphic with what happened. I think it was like a 20 minute attack that that was assailant, it that long? Yeah, that that oh assailant God. ate that man's face. Ugh. So it was one of those things that I was like latching on to. And I like to have fun with the news in my own world. And I'm like, there's a cover up behind this. There's a zombie <laughs> virus that they're covering up. Right. I'm sure oh, you tinfoil hats. I love it. <laughs> right. I sit in my office and I daydream like the zombie <laughs> apocalypse. It's going to happen. So that was a huge thing when I was like, God, months into writing Fractured and thinking, how do I not use this? Yeah. And I'm sorry. Can you tell me one more time? How long was this supposed to have gone on? I think it was like a 20 minute attack, the real version. Yeah. Right. Not mine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess I can see it going on for quite a while because who in their right mind would jump in between those two? <laughs> right. I would think um, they literally were zombies and be like, no, I don't want to get bitten and become one. <laughs> no, we would all be running in the opposite <laughs> direction. So I remember when that happened. And like a year later, the homeless man did interviews about being attacked. Mm -hmm. But in my story, neither are ever seen again, mm. which comes the conspiracies that it was a big cover up. Yeah. Yeah. They got rid of them before it got a chance to spread. <laughs> mm. Exactly. <laughs> but besides that particular event at that time, were there any other societal fears present that inspired the story or influence particular elements of the story? Not for book one, but as I was writing the series, there was more inspirations about things going on in life that definitely fed into books two through four. But book one, it was like I had started writing and then that happens. And I was like, oh man. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And that was 2012, you said. Yeah. Wow. 2012. Yeah. I think that's where people from Florida got a bad rap for being, they came up right. with the whole Florida man trope yes. just from that one incident. Well, and then like, if you read like weird news, like just Google weird news, you get so many crazy stories that are obviously not making like national news. And like, you'll get these small, crazy things that come out of Florida. Everything comes out of Florida. And I remember at the time, I was also at the end of doing radio, and I was doing a lot of the news 
And I would constantly grab the weird news headlines because I loved making fun of Florida. Mm. <laughs> Floridians that are listening, were, this is we're we're just uh no offense to Florida. My sister's in Florida. Yeah. <laughs> I have family in Florida. And then obviously bath salts was all over the news, and you would see these just tragic videos of people all over the world falling under the grasp of this drug. But if you watch the videos of someone under the influence of bath salts, it doesn't even seem real. It's so tragic. And I was even looking at a video the other day of South America and these police had, and I'm going to call them victims because I truly believe they are. They were in the back of the bed of a pickup truck and they were just watching them OD on bath salts. And it looked like two zombies had been captured and they were videotaping them. I watch strange things, but that was just, <laughs> <laughs> that was just recent. Gotcha. But yeah. Well, circling back to the book, you have a woman, her boyfriend, and their dog, as well as a military man and his son. Do you feel like these characters fit into traditional character archetypes? And if so, which ones? Um, traditional characters. I think so. I gave a mishmash. You know, sometimes you'll get the books where it's just civilians. And then sometimes you'll get the books where you've got like your men and women in uniform. And I just kind of mashed everyone together. I was trying to pull from real life on what would happen if like, say, martial law hit. Mm -hmm. We would instantly be thrown in the mix with the military. Well, so this is kind of, uh, I guess, in the grand scheme of things, a goofy little observation of mine. But Harmony has a sister named Melody. Why the musical names? You know, I wish I was more clever. Um, <laughs> well, that is pretty clever. That's why I was asking. <laughs> but I wish I had put thought behind it. So Melody was one of my favorite names in high school. I just love the name and I've loved the name since high school. And, you know, when my sister and I were having kids, neither of us named out of five girls, none of the melody, <laughs> but I use it in a lot of my stories <laughs> <laughs> and we've used it even in a couple of scripts that we've done together. Okay. It's, I don't know. It's just a fun name. <laughs> and then Harmony goes really good with it. <laughs> So your entire family, including your sister, you've collaborated with your sister on screenplays? Well, my sister works in the industry, the film industry. Mm -hmm. She works in animation. She's a producer. She's awesome. We try to collaborate when we can. Well, the character of Lieutenant Colonel Jackson embodies the traditional military archetype of the brave, selfless, and stoic soldier. His stoicism is truly tested when he has to alleviate the pain of someone very close to him. Complex characters often harbor their own internal struggles and conflicts. So does Jackson grapple with personal demons that surface later in the series? And if so, can you tell us about what they might be without telling us how they manifest? Yeah, I love Jackson. He is dealing with a lot 
because his wife is mentioned in book one Mm -hmm. and she is a virologist. Mm -hmm. And so she's on the other side of it. So he not only has this inside view of his wife and what the government was doing, but he's also got this moral dilemma of he's a military man and he wants to also work and help people. But then he also has his son and the son is really young, which also I think adds complexity when we're dealing with children, you know, as parents, it's not just about you anymore. So Jackson, he's like, I've got this job to do as a commitment to my country, Mm -hmm. but I also have my family and the world has just gone to crap. So you will see all through the series him fight that. Mm -hmm. And at the end, it comes to the ultimate Mm face-off. I'll say that in book four. Okay. Well, one of the other characters that's really pivotal, at least in book one, is mayhem <laughs> and even everyone though, loves mayhem yeah and even though he's an animal <laughs> he has quite a significant role in the book he excels at identifying threats before they get too close but sometimes his barking alerts the zombies to their presence and mm-hmm. there is also a lot of attention paid to mayhem's care such as taking him out to use the bathroom and making sure he's <laughs> fed i remember i think it's the first night they sleep in that attic that's one of the things that's pointed out in the morning mm-hmm. is that they need to take mayhem out to uh <laughs> where's the dog do his business be? yeah so <laughs> does that come from you being a dog person or is there another reason yeah. you made mayhem such a dynamic part of the story our animals are part of our lives so like i look at my dog and i'm like i wouldn't leave him but the jerk would bark and alert (laughs) like you're not going to calm down the dog Mm -hmm. and putting in that conflict I felt like added like the real tension we would face like a baby crying Mm -hmm. like you have a newborn you're trying to be quiet or even a toddler and toddlers don't understand and they start crying and there's a zombie horde out your door what do you do Mm -hmm. And in book two, I hope you read it, Mm -hmm. we're faced with that even at another level. Yeah. But yeah, Mayhem, I mean, everyone loves dogs. I got emails, emails about Mayhem. (laughs) 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 Like people upset at me. (laughs) Oh, Well, well, is it for particular things that happened to him that would create a spoiler? I mean, no, but like they made assumptions on what could happen. And I was like, just read the series. Oh, oh, okay. So the series is already written. So they're like retroactively telling you if yeah, anything like, bad happens uh, to him. <laughs> if anything bad happens to Mayhem. And I'm like, okay, I know everyone loves the dog. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, the presence of a child, as we've spoken of with regard to Jackson, raises the stakes for survival because readers don't want to see anything bad happen to someone who's innocent. And what's more innocent than a child? So was 
Ethan's purpose solely to raise the stakes, or does he play a much more complex role? And can you expand on that? Well, like I said, children raise the stakes automatically. Mm -hmm. You are going to do everything to save your kid, even put your own life in jeopardy. But if you put your own life in jeopardy, your child isn't going to survive. So they have those internal conflicts that they constantly fight throughout the series Mm -hmm. that you want to do what's best to keep them safe without getting yourself killed. Mm -hmm. So more of that is through the series. Well, what is the dynamic between Dan and Harmony? Because Dan seems like a stand-up guy, at least when the proverbial shit starts to hit the fan, but... The story starts off with Harmony having an internal monologue that doesn't necessarily speak poorly of Dan, but doesn't exactly have an endearing tone. Right, because she reminds him not to be a hero. And that was her big thing. We're not going to help people. Mm -hmm. We're going to think about each other Mm -hmm. and our family. Don't be a hero is the first thing she tells him. Dan is based off my husband, Dan. Mm -hmm. All right, Dan. Well, if you're anything um, like the guy in the book, (laughs) hell yeah. (laughs) I will say my husband will always be a hero. And what's funny is it is almost entirely based off his personality. Mm. Even down to the detail of like the night vision goggles we have in our garage. Mm. He has everything. Sweet. Um, he's just one of those, but he's also one of those people who just naturally throws himself in front of the bus for someone. Mm. And so I constantly have to remind him, please don't be a hero. Even if it's to go and constantly help your friends, I can't have you just always gone. Mm. Um, (laughs) It sounds terrible, but my Dan or the Dan in the book is 100% based off my Dan. Okay. But isn't there one part like before, I think it might be before she even gets home from the run where she's kind of, like I said, not speaking ill of him, but kind of, I guess maybe that's just something that happens to everybody. They're like, I'm exposing a lot about my relationship in book one. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, everyone's going to grab onto that. (laughs) But yeah, she's probably like bitching about him yeah a little bit yeah i forget what she was bitching about something yeah like he's gonna be in his car he's gonna have his cell phone turned off yeah yeah, he's gonna be listening to music yeah oh yeah it's my husband oh okay (laughs) (laughs) i love him dearly (laughs) so the dynamic is is that even though they're like live-in boyfriend girlfriend in the story they're actually a married couple (laughs) oh yeah and that's that was us from day one. Gotcha. So there was 100% honesty, even in our first dating life. Yeah, that's cool. So, <laughs> oh man, poor Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Which Dan are we talking about? My Dan. Oh, why? <laughs> oh gosh, he just cracks up. He's like, I knew it was about me because I've always said he'll never listen to this show. But I used to say like, not everything's about you. Uh, it's not really about you. He's like, thanks for not killing me. (laughs) Or if you were to ask him, he would tell you 
every man in my books is about him because I kill all of them off. Uh, gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> Brutal. <laughs> Wait till he gets me really mad. I'll write a really gory story. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's fun. Well, am I correct that the publication of books three and four was in 2019 and 2020 respectively? I think they were. Yeah. That's quite a coincidence with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Can you tell me more about that? It just aligned. I took a little bit of a break mm-hmm. having the girls and was able to finish the books and then a pandemic hit. Mm. So I was lucky to still release them. So the first two were what, 2013? 2013 and 2015. 2013, 2015. So you started off with the notion of seeing that report about the <laughs> the guy eating the other guy's face, but then fast forward and what you were writing about, a pandemic happened. Yeah. Did it seem like a little surreal to you? It did. What else was going on, though, there were other events that happened in those years. Mm-hmm. L.A., and I talk about that in the book as well, is where I pulled the TB scare we had in L.A., if you remember that. It was huge. We have it a lot because we have the problems on Skid Row. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of stuff that goes on. But I remember I use that as some inspiration too. when we had those outbreaks. And there were like 100 outbreaks or something, which was just crazy at the time. Mm -hmm. And that's also mentioned. So I started like pulling pieces from a lot of issues that were going on in terms of scary, like, illnesses going around and things like that. And then COVID. Yeah. (laughs) But the story was pretty much already set once COVID hit, like what they were facing. And yeah, it's just a crazy coincidence. Yeah. Just as kind of a side note, you mentioned Skid Row. Where is Skid Row? Is it a particular street or? No, it's huge. Okay. It's like 20 blocks. It's a huge area, Uh neighborhood in downtown LA. There are certain streets that are what you see in the news. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, it's like an actual big area. I forget how many people we have there. But it's like the last time they did it was like Mm 15,000 homeless. Oh, wow. It's pretty confined, but like it'll bleed into the other areas. In book three, I bring in Skid Row. Mm -hmm. So book one and two, you're following a group of characters. Spoiler alert. (laughs) In book three, I go back to the beginning and I bring you on Skid Row where they talk about like what was happening on Skid Row in the very beginning. And then I follow a group of people to get out of Skid Row. Mm -hmm. And then on book four, they all come together again. Okay. Well, the way you describe the virus in your book is that it keeps the bodies of the infected animated long enough to pass the virus off to somebody else. And the brain is obviously needed to animate the body, but, and this is kind of one of my OCD obsessive detailed questions, does... You ask me all the hard questions. Does the brain <laughs> have anything to do with 
maintaining the life of the virus, like regulating body temperature that's needed to keep the virus alive. And and the fluid. And the fluid. So you've got like a whole kind of a biological profile for this virus? Well, you start to read about zombie viruses, right? Mm -hmm. And I was trying to pull from those pieces of that because they really break it down. I wasn't going to break it down that medically in the book. I think our readers know what zombies are. I don't think they care about the intricate details. And I'm not a doctor. And I was either going to try to deep dive medically and try to do like a real virus, mm. or I was just going to play pretend and totally make something up and make my life a little easier. Mm. There are things I did call my doctor friends and ask, how would this happen the body? So I did try to get those. But for the most part, I was like, it's a zombie virus. The brain is running it. It's what we hear in all the zombie novels. You have to kill the brain to stop the virus. So when you say zombie virus, are you just talking about kind of the the typical thing you find? There's not like literal zombie viruses you're referring to, right? Yes. Oh, I thought you were talking about within, <laughs> no. just within the genre. No. Like in the world, there are zombie viruses. They attach to the brain of the animal. The virus attaches itself and now controls the animal. Okay. In what context? I mean, I'm just, I'm trying to wrap my own brain around this. <laughs> no, I love it. So, you know, over the years, I was reading about like deer and like even ants down to getting these. Did you ever watch that interview about fungus and how we should be more afraid of fungus? No, but I do know that I think fungus has been around for longer than any organism. I think when they refer to evolution as us coming from the primordial ooze, aren't they talking about a form of fungus? Yeah, they're talking about fungus. Yeah. So there's these zombie ants that you can read about. And it's a species of fungus that's super dangerous. And it's toxic to animals. And there's this one that targets and infects insects by its spores. Mm -hmm. And after the infection takes place, the parasite or the parasitic fungus takes control of the insect's mind. Mm. So that's when I say like real life zombie virus. But what does it do when it takes hold of the mind? It alters its behavior. Okay. And then it actually feeds on the insect growing in and out of its body. And then the insect finally dies. Does it make them aggressive, like do crazy things like chew somebody's face? I mean, I'm, I'm not the <laughs> ants, obviously, but like something right. like if it was to get into a human. You know, I've never read that specific on it. The articles that I did read were kind of like vague, mm -hmm. but that actually is getting studied. Wow. Those viruses. you got to read those. Yeah. <laughs> You'll love it. That's going to be the next big thing. <laughs> <laughs> And then, you know, they have like zombie spiders, same thing. Uh -huh. It was these, I believe, also a fungus. And then there's folklore out there mm. that we can always grab onto. Yeah. But yeah, there was also these articles on not fungus, but certain bacteria mm -hmm. that turn plants into zombies. Wow. It's really interesting stuff. <laughs> yeah. You try to pull all of the real life yeah. into your books. 
Well, speaking of Dan being based on Dan for the most part, how much of you is in the character of Harmony? I think I've pulled some of that personality. Yeah. Harmony is a bit of a loner. I think loner is a bad word, but like she's really introvert. Mm -hmm. I think she opens the book by saying like, I don't want to be heroes. I don't want to help people. Mm -hmm. I'm not a very trusting human Mm -hmm. and I don't think Harmony is. So yeah, you could say I pulled some of those character traits. Okay. Well, the concept of morality often becomes blurred in dystopian worlds as we're just kind of touching on when it comes down to personal survival, having to focus on yourself, your friends and family, possibly not even your friends. Sometimes it just has to be yourself and your family when it's the end of the world. Yeah, to each their own. Can you discuss the moral dilemmas your characters face and how they make decisions in a world where traditional ethics may no longer apply and, you know, maybe some things that aren't like tied to major story arcs, you know, just some examples. You see a lot of it in the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And even in book two, we open with familiar characters, but not Dan and Harmony. And they're also faced with that where your family is your priority. Mm. And like the characters in this book are not preppers. They're not even really prepared for this. So they're trying to figure out their boundaries Mm -hmm. and like, what do we need to survive? And are we going to really like work with other people or trust other people? And along the way, they really question those ideals. And then, you know, that's how they met Jackson. Mm where they weren't going to help. And then they did. And then now they're stuck with him, which is good for them, right? He's a great guy. But you've also got the dynamic of he has a child. Mm -hmm. So it brings the stakes back up. And I think the bigger the group you're in, the more that you have to worry about other people. And I don't know about you, but I'm not going to be one that's going to listen to other people's opinions. (laughs) I'm going to be the person in the groups like, no, I'm doing it this way. Mm And you can either come with me or you can go. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not one of that's going to be a, a follower. I already know that about myself. Yeah, I believe <laughs> Like, have you. you ever thought about that? <laughs> 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 have you ever thought about that? Like, could I really, like, listen to someone else when it's my life at stake or my children's life? Mm-hmm. No. No. Yeah. I'm going to be following my own rules at that point. Unless we're all stuck in, like, martial law. Yeah, it makes it a lot easier to follow what somebody's telling you if they have a gun to your head. (laughs) Exactly, right? But yeah, no, I always say, I'm like, no, we'll lock down the house and we'll sit Mm -hmm. until we figure it out. But I'm certainly not going to follow some random group of people. Yeah. Well, the military base was really cool. And I likened it to Clive Cussler's, I believe the way they labeled it was scrupulous realism, I think. So what kind of research did you conduct to develop that military base and all the realistic military logistics discussed in the story? So I have some friends in the military that let me pick their brain. See, I knew it had to be something. (laughs) Yeah, I make phone calls. (laughs) They all read it before and they correct me and they'll give me pointers. But that base, 
actually goes back to my college days when I was really into visiting ghost towns. Mm-hmm. And where are you located again? H Town, <laughs> Houston, H-town. Texas. Oh, right. I knew that. <laughs> I knew that. So out here we have Area 51, we have all these weird secretive bases out in California in the deserts. And when I was in college, we'd love to go to ghost towns Mm. and abandoned ones. And then we would love to go to mines and like check out mines. So it sounds so weird saying it now. I'm like, I probably gotten myself killed, but (laughs) we did these things right Mm. in college. And my sister and I would go out to the desert And I remember there's this one military out there. I'm totally spacing on the name, but it was abandoned. We have a couple of abandoned military bases and I've gotten to do tours to a few of them, but we went to this one and my sister could totally tell me the name of this, but it's in like, so you go into this little town and there's like one restaurant and it's the type of restaurant where it's the same people all the time. Mm. And like forks drop when a stranger enters. (laughs) We don't take kindly to your type around. Yeah, I know. I'm like, (laughs) I'm a small town. Uh. I know exactly what it's like. (laughs) So so I fit right into the small towns. Mm -hmm. Born and raised in a small town. (laughs) So we were there and this old man was asking what we were doing, what we were exploring. And he told us this conspiracy that this abandoned military camp was still active. And I was like, well, what do you mean? He's like, the lights come on at a certain hour and then they turn off. So like, I was really like digging Mm -hmm. these stories and they were probably pulling our chain. I was a college kid, (laughs) but I attached onto that stuff. Mm -hmm. And like, I remember we drove out to get as close as we could. And sure enough, Everything he told us was real. A unmarked van drove by us, went through a fence, closed the fence, went through what looks like a cave door. It's a truck door into the mountain. Mm -hmm. And they said that that was the underground road to get to the base. And sure enough, the lights come on and then they stay open. And then in the morning, we hear that if you were there, you'll see an unmarked van leave. Hmm. But it was really cool, right? Like Mm -hmm. when you can think of all sorts of things that could be happening Mm. behind these fences. Yeah. And there, of course, there are signs all over. If you cross the fence, you'll be shot dead. (laughs) But which makes it even more fun Mm. and more thrilling. Like there's something crazy going. But this little community outside of this military base could totally believe and tell you, no, there's activity there. They opened it back up. They shut it down and then they reopened it years later without the public knowing. Mm. And I love that stuff. Yeah, Don't you love that stuff? Uh, Makes you want to like start Googling. (laughs) Yeah, that's why I don't really buy into the, uh, you know, they don't call them UFOs anymore. They call them UAPs or something. Oh, they do. I don't read about that stuff, but yeah, I didn't know that. I'm not saying I don't believe that there's life outside of earth i'm just saying i don't think what people see in the sky is alien life form i think it's government testing a new type of drone or you know something that they're like no we don't know what you're talking about it's probably aliens you know <laughs> it's just yeah 
I mean, I don't know. I'm torn on the whole alien things. I hope that we're not the only life mm-hmm. in the world or the galaxy. Yeah. Space freaks me out. <laughs> so I try not to think about it. <laughs> because when you start thinking about it, you feel so small that it's frightening. Yeah. And so insignificant. So I do stay on Earth. And then when the questions get really hard, I just ask Dan because he knows about all that. Have you ever talked to somebody that's a flat earther? No, I don't think I can handle that. I asked somebody that I work with that's a flat earther. And I'm willing to listen to anybody say anything (laughs) because like, honestly, I'm what, 43 right now. There is a large percentage of what I was taught growing up that I think is absolute bullshit now. (laughs) Now, I don't believe in a flat earth, but I, you know, I'll listen to somebody tell me why is the earth flat? And I asked him, I was like, so if it's a lie that's being perpetuated, there's got to be a benefit. Like people don't usually just lie for the hell of it. You know, it's like, so why are they lying to us about it? And uh, he said it's because if you go with the heliocentric model of the universe where we're revolving around the sun, it makes us seem extremely insignificant and therefore people are less likely to believe in God. But where do you go? If it's a flat earth, you're just going to fall off the edge. Well, I, they, I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not, a, I, I'm not a flat earther, but you would be <laughs> amazed at what kind of information and what kind of stuff they have for you to consume if you, you want to listen. <laughs> I can't. So I kind of draw the line there because my sister wanted me to watch these documentaries about all that. Mm. And I was like, You know, I just don't think I'm ready. Like, I don't think I'm mentally ready to absorb what I would call a little bit of nonsense. Like, for me. I don't know if you. I don't think I can handle it. No, no, no. I mean, if you listen to it, I mean, it is like, imagine the best fantasy novel you've ever read. Like, they, it's. And they got it. It's awesome. Like, the whole, (laughs) like, so, uh, and I know we're diverging from the book, but like. So the earth is flat. There's no corners. And so the reason you never fly off the edge of the earth or whatever is because you're going around in a circle, basically. And every spot on the earth is guarded by the respective country that's closest to it by their military. Like they have some secret division that guards the edge of the earth. And this is. Better than I could have ever imagined. And there is a dome. (laughs) There's a couple of different theories, but one of them is that there is a dome that goes over the circle, and that's what holds the ozone in. And I was listening to this guy. He's like, so what is the dome made of? He's like, well, there's a lot of different theories. One is that it's made of sapphire. So (laughs) there's like a sapphire dome holding the ozone in on a round, flat earth. And yeah, wow. it's like my brain just exploded. Yeah, but. it's pretty intense. <laughs> Any flat earthers out there? Know. I'm not. I'm, I can't. I'm not talking shit. Any flat earthers no, out there? It's, um, <laughs> it's just not for us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Go and have your opinions. Write the coolest novel ever yes. about flat earth. <laughs> my brain can't handle it, and I know the limits. Yeah. I know my limits. Well, <laughs> circling back. To you as a writer, actually, you are a ghostwriter. I was curious to know about your work as a ghostwriter because I feel like ghostwriters are like the CIA of writers. Like to me, there's I don't know why there's a certain level of intrigue that I find of that because it's like 
I may have read something you wrote and I don't know mm-hmm. it. Yeah. It's weird. Because we sign NDAs. Yeah, yeah. Like a CIA agent, if they get their cover blown, the CIA does not claim them. Like, no, I have no idea who this person is. It's weird. They just, yeah. they work for the CIA, but yet they don't exist. It's like you are employed by somebody and you write a book for them, but then they completely disregard that you even exist. Yeah. <laughs> you do not exist. They pay you to keep your mouth shut. Mm-hmm. And my family doesn't even know what the books are. Yeah. They know the extent of like right now I'm writing a crime thriller and I have a biography, I have two biographies that are happening, but they don't know the titles of those projects. They're untitled mm-hmm. and they don't really know the details beyond that. Because mm. my name's not going on it. Yeah. That's so crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. So like if you tell somebody you just get sued or do they kill you? let's think of the darker one it's fun that's what this is all about right i'll just disappear i'll no longer be employed (laughs) it started for me i love biographies Mm -hmm. well what's interesting is i don't actually like biographies i've never read one in my life except the ones i've written (laughs) 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 um but But like i'm not a documentary i don't like biographies except when i write them (laughs) except when i I do (laughs) i don't dislike it it's not something i read right you know how some people are just passionate about reading every biography there Mm. is i'm probably not going to i'll probably just look for the highlights and it's mostly a time thing and i just really like to be taken out of reality when I get to read. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyway, that's, but I started doing it because I fell in love with a person's story and he was never going to write it. And I was like, but someone has to tell it. Mm-hmm. And he was like, well, then you do it. And I fell in love with doing that. Do most, I mean, I guess to a certain extent, popular people, famous people like presidents, I would imagine like most presidents probably have ghostwriters, right? They all have ghostwriters. But what's interesting is there are different levels of how much that celebrity or politician actually write the book. And every writer is going to have a different process. Hmm. So a lot of times that person is spending a lot of time with you Hmm. to get all of the information down. They're just not typing in the words. They're just not doing the physical act. Mm -hmm. But they're probably spending hours and hours of recordings or maybe they are writing down the stories, but it's not in like book form. Mm -hmm. So the author is going to come in and put it together to where it's like it makes a good biography. So now are you talking about the person that the biography is about Mm -hmm. recording things about their life? And sending it to a ghostwriter or? No. So like one of the processes I have for a biography I did was I sat down with the person and interviewed them Mm -hmm. and just interviewed and interviewed. It took months to get all the details that I wanted. And then I dictate it from there. I saw on a television show one time, a guy was having a biography ghostwritten for him and the man pretty much tailed him, like went everywhere he went, just kind of, what would the word be? Just observed him. Is that something? He shadows him. Yeah, shadow. There we go. That's what I'm looking for. 
Is that a common thing for ghostwriters to do? Yeah, I didn't need to shadow the couple of ones I did because they were friends of mine. So I knew them very well. But also, I just was one that I just wanted to interview them Mm -hmm. and ask questions because I felt like I got so much out of them. Like in one case, there were tears like for hours, Mm -hmm. which starts to get really emotional. And you hope that that (laughs) translates in the book. Sorry, my little one. She's trying to go to grandma's house. She's sneaking up behind you. She is. The last time we Um, recorded, somebody snuck up behind somebody. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, I just, I think everyone has a different way of doing it. Mm -hmm. Well, tell me about your work you did as a radio personality. Do you still do anything in radio or? I don't, except for things like this. Mm -hmm. I spent over a decade in radio. We were on uh, Sirius XM for, gosh, I think 13 years. Mm Mm-hmm. And then we did a couple of other like podcast companies for a while. It was fun. Mm -hmm. I was a producer for a couple of different shows and I did like some on-air stuff like news. And then when I left SiriusXM, I did my own show, but I mostly like to talk about the weird news that I was telling (laughs) you about earlier about face eating and Uh what's happening in Florida. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now... If you work for a satellite radio station, Mm -hmm. what is the transmission of that like? Do you have like a massive dish that's a... No, it's... um, (laughs) I'm forgetting what the line is called, but it's basically like a really high-level phone line. Mm -hmm. How does that get... And we got it to New York. And New York is just like, there's some sort of... Where Sirius XM is. Sirius XM headquarters is in New York. But we worked out of L.A. So you were like a a satellite? Yeah, like a satellite office. Satellite, not in the literal satellite sense, like satellite radio, but like a satellite station. And the signal went over phone line to their headquarters. And how is the signal being? Then they broadcast it. They broadcast it from like a dish or something like that? Oh, I don't know. I don't know all the technology. Oh, okay. I'm just curious because I know like if you go to an actual AM or FM radio station, you know, they're usually in an office building and then on the roof, you've got these, you know, repeater towers or something like that. I was just curious how satellite, I guess I assume with a a satellite dish, I don't know. (laughs) I assume there's something in space getting it. Yeah. Well, your bio says that you began your career at an early age under the tutelage of your, quote, industry parents. We spoke about your sister a little bit. How were your parents involved in the industry? My parents were both in the film industry. My dad was a director and editor, editor mostly, Mm -hmm. but he did some directing stuff. And my mom was an actress. Okay. And they met on a set. Nice. Like it was one of those like silly stories that she was the actress who fell in love with the director. Nice. (laughs) They have a sweet love story. But you know, my dad was in the industry his whole life. My mom did quit. She was not an actress after she had kids. But she put us in it. Like she encouraged it. She encouraged the arts. Mm -hmm. She encouraged being creative. She still does. Mm -hmm. She loves that stuff. She put us in all the theater and put us in 
little TV shows <laughs> and I didn't go up in LA, but like she found those outlets even in Louisiana. And then, you know, we moved out here for college and all that. And I thought I was going to be an actress still. And that's not really a thing. <laughs> <laughs> I learned very quick. I didn't really want to be an actress. (laughs) And I found my passion for writing about 17. And I was writing and I thought, oh, I'm going to be a screenwriter. And I still do screenwriting stuff. But I realized that this is a very hard industry. And like, I was just going to write and see where things landed. Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to like put all my eggs in one basket. Okay. Yeah, they loved it. They were very encouraging for us to follow in their footsteps. That's good. Yeah, I'm so used to hearing all of the horror stories, you know, especially with like child actors and stuff like that. But Oh, yeah, yeah. it's a thing. It really is a thing. Is it? It feels like in those cases, the parents kind of lose sight. Mm-hmm. Um, the child becomes a commodity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. They become a bank account. You do hear that, but then there are also children who genuinely do like to perform and you have these really supportive parents that are pushing their dream. But nowadays they have so many laws protecting children on set. So Mm. you're going to find your horror stories if you dig for them. (laughs) I don't think it's anything to be afraid of. All right. Well, Kind of circling back to your writing process, where is the strangest place you've ever gotten an idea for a short story? For a short story? You know, when I get my ideas or like I get them really flowing is my walks with my sister. I'll be like, okay, so I'm doing this. Talk to me about this. You guys are kind of spitballing back and forth? Yeah. Okay. She likes horror. That's not what she does for a living. But... She loves it Mm -hmm. and she'll totally talk through story points with me, which is nice. So I would say on my walks is where I get the blood flowing. The weirdest places? Gosh, I probably have a few that I can't think about right now. I don't know. Sometimes stuff just comes up. I've been in the kitchen and something hit me. and Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Right? I asked, are you a writer? Uh... I mean, I've, I've had aspirations. There's been three iterations of the podcast and the last one before I started doing the interview format, I was doing narrative fiction. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So it was every week on Tuesday and I was writing about 5,000 words and the... Of your own stuff? Yeah. And a season would be nine episodes. So... What is that? Nine times five, 45,000 words, give or take a season. But that's awesome. It was done in a hurry. I mean, I had people that liked it. The whole reason I quit doing it is because it was really dark and kind of depraved. And I'm pretty sure <laughs> if what? It, I'm pretty sure. Horror, horror? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Or, like more transgressive horror, though. Okay. And I'm pretty sure if one person had complained and my podcast host would have listened to like <laughs> one episode, they would have just dropped me. So I was like, oh, God, I need to find something else to do. <laughs> <laughs> you should put them in, in books. Yeah, I thought about it. <laughs> I felt bad, though, because this one guy that really liked it that was following me, I stopped right in the middle of season seven. There was, oh, no. there was four more episodes. And I told him, I was like, yeah, I'm not doing it anymore. He's like, 
are you going to finish the season? I was like, no, sorry. <laughs> and you never did? I never you did. I just, hanging? well, I mean, if I wasn't going to publish it, I was like, why am I going to put in all the work? <laughs> oh, well, because people were listening. I know. Kind of a dick move. <laughs> <laughs> I was just, uh, I don't know. <laughs> just one all of those right. things. It's weird. Yeah. <laughs> uh. But yeah, to answer your question, I don't know if I would say I am a writer, but I have aspired to be a writer. Okay. Yeah. I want to read your work. All right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if we're still friends after that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm in. Well, okay. So my next question piggybacks off that perfectly. Of all the short stories you've written, do you believe any have reached splatterpunk level depravity? Do you go that far or do you have a limit? You know, I don't know if anything I've done could pass the threshold into Splatterpunk. I did write this short story called Devil Man, and it's part of my Louisiana series. Mm-hmm. Um, it was in the anthology called Symphony of the Damned. And a lot of that, I think, was pretty gory, although his next anthology was called WTF. And I think that was even more gory. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably my goriest story if people have read that. It's called okay. The Devil Man. Maybe some of my scripts are gorier. Mm-hmm. So my novels don't get that. I mean, I put gore in it, but it's not like slice and dice. Mm-hmm. Right before COVID hit, I did have a film in production and that was the goriest thing I had ever written. (laughs) And it was so gory that it was almost like, this is a joke. Like Marie, how far are you going to take this for this film? (laughs) And then COVID hit, it was never produced. It was a real bummer. We had the whole cast lined up and everything. (sighs) And I can't spoil that when I would love to tell you what I did, but there was this couple of really dark scenes, Mm -hmm. but those dang NDAs. Because mm. it's not my property yeah. anymore. <laughs> Darn the luck. But I was really proud of how dark I got for that one. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. Maybe if you can figure out how to like keep it vague enough. Um, no, no, I'm not talking about yeah. now. Just like one of these days. <laughs> well, here, I'll tell you this. I did a lot of research on the cuts of a cow, mm-hmm. like the types of what we call the like fillet, the yeah. ribeye. I did a lot of research on the cuts of a cow and how those could be related to a person. Mm. That's his. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to I'm going to tell. I was like, no, I'm really proud of myself. <laughs> so gross. Nice. But we did it. <laughs> Well, it was pretty gross. Well, how do you develop characters? Do you do the whole character profile dossiers that list the characteristics like a psychological profile? I do. I do a little of that. I like Excel spreadsheets. Mm. Spreadsheets? I'm a big Excel girl. Okay. All of my characters are in Excel spreadsheets. Interesting. And I build a whole world there. Does it stay in the computer or do you print it out and it's on a wall? So I'm a handwriter, uh-huh. and a lot of times my office will be full of stickies when I'm developing, uh-huh. and I'll do like boards and character boards and all that. And then 
you can't keep the sticky notes up forever, but I do like my sticky notes. Mm -hmm. And then I put it all in a spreadsheet. Okay. Because eventually you got to break the stuff down. You got to turn it into pitch decks and all that. And you got to do it. But when you're working, like I'll have a big board in front of me, lots of sticky notes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, throughout the body of your work, which genres would you say you've written in and or intersected with? I stay in the horror genre and thriller. Mm-hmm. I like action in my stuff. But yeah, I stay pretty much in there. Horror, thriller. As far as like subgenres, do you ever intersect with sci-fi horror or transgressive horror? Or no, no just kind of your... I'll get some ghost stories in there. Mm-hmm. I really like crime, supernatural, love supernatural. But yeah, I don't go any further than that. I'm not very good. I love Mm sci-fi. I mean, I think some people would say like the post-apocalypse stuff, you'll fall under sci-fi. But I don't think I'm very good at it. I enjoy it. I have not tempted to write it. Mm. Okay. Well, how would you describe your literary voice? Oh boy, that's a hard one. (laughs) My voice? Your literary voice. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Dark. Okay. Yeah. I'm ghostwriting a crime thriller. Mm -hmm. And even that, I bring in a lot of darkness. I would say I brought in a lot of darkness to it. Mm. Well, do you have any life hacks for writers that struggle to find time to write due to family obligations? Oh, yeah, I know about that. (laughs) It's hard, right? You've got the kids, you've got your spouse, you've got family that want to spend time with you. So I try to stay really disciplined. Mm -hmm. You know, the kids are at school. I write any free moment I have. Mm -hmm. But nothing disturbs 8.30 p.m. on. Mm. I come into my office and those are dedicated hours after 8.30, because my husband is an early riser, so he goes to bed. And the kids, they generally stay up, but they know mommy is writing. Like, this is mommy's time. If you need something, I'm here. But like, this is my time where my head's down and I'm really zoning out. And I think when you have a devoted time that you won't allow others to interfere with, and a lot of people are thinking, Well, that's really hard. I have kids. I have a five-year-old and a Mm nine-year-old. You just saw the (laughs) five-year-old crawl. But how respectful was she? Like, she knows mom's boundaries. Mm -hmm. She's not going to come in here. She's not going to invade my space. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really what it's about is that boundary kind of make people uncomfortable. And I think once you get past the, it's okay to be a little selfish if this is really what you want to do. Devote like three hours a night. Yeah. People can forgive you. Mm -hmm. You know, even like when we sit down and watch a movie, I'm going to sound really selfish, but I'm like, if it's past 7 p.m. and you wanted to start a movie, Mm -hmm. it better be under two hours. Yeah. Because mama's got a date with her laptop. Mm -hmm. And I really do try to stick to that. Yeah. You know, the other night we went to like 9.15. I got a little grumpy. But this is what I decided, like, I'm very busy during the day. We've got a lot going on. So I needed to find something. 
And a lot of times I carry my laptop to like even my kid's ballet class because I'm going to sit and wait for her. So she's probably got like an hour and a half, two hours sometimes, depending on what she's doing that week. And I'll sit and write. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I sneak in things. Like I sneak in time. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, I would tell everybody, you got to devote something where no one is allowed to touch it. And you don't have to do it every day. I just happen to do it every day because I have a husband who, no matter what night of the week it is, he's going to bed at 8.30. (laughs) (laughs) So he doesn't really care to stay up and watch late movies. Uh Like that's not who he is. But if you can get like three times a week, find that time for yourself. I don't have much of a social life. So that's the other issue. (laughs) (laughs) Same. (laughs) My social life is based around my kids Uh and they keep me social. Mm -hmm. It's a trade-off too. Like I do like everything for school. So if like, say the girls have like a birthday party, I usually send my husband. (laughs) I'm not the mom going to the birthday parties. Mm -hmm. I send the husband and he can go be social and I'll get some writing time. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you just got to, Selfish is not such a bad word. People are afraid of that, though. Yeah. You know, you probably know this. Oh, yeah. It's hard. Boundaries. You have to set them. Mm -hmm. And you have to not think that being selfish is such a bad word. Mm -hmm. Because we still need to find what makes you as an individual happy. Yeah. I've had this conversation. I think it was with Red Legault about... Even though she was a mom, her focus on creating art was extremely important so that she didn't lose her identity. I hear her. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I talk to my kids about it too. When you love something and you get to do it every single day, how lucky are you? Mm -hmm. And I hope the same for them. And they're like amazing at five and nine. They totally get it. There are times she'll come in and she'll be like, but I need cuddles. (laughs) And then you get the mom guilt. And I Mm. think moms are really hard on themselves about that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times I'll give in to her. But then there's a lot of times I'm like, honey, like I got a deadline. Mm. I have to finish this. And she gets it. It took a long time to get there. Yeah. But you don't want to lose yourself. Mm. Well, Marie, as always, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for having me. It's fun chatting. Absolutely. So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? So I announced that I am putting my series, The Colony, Mm -hmm. into a novel. So I'm pretty excited about that. Nice. The Colony is another post-apocalypse dystopian series. It was a series of five short stories. And... You know, I never knew what I wanted to do with Emma. And this year I was like, you know what? I'm going to give Emma a bigger voice. And we hope to be releasing that in like, I was hoping like secretly February, Mm -hmm. but I'm not sure it's going to come out. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see. But The Colony is a whole nother series of zombies. If you love that genre. All right. Sounds good. Well, listeners at home, all links will be in the description. And Marie, thank you again for joining me. Thanks. 
And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday when I will be joined by a writer of novels and short stories that has taken the two forms and joined them in an unholy alliance. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. It's been dark way too long in this place. That bright smile long gone been replaced. From ear to ear I see that fear in your face. Tell me when the last time you feel safe. Cause there's some evil people in the streets. Evil at your front door creeping while you sleep. It's time to raise up, show that evil we and weak. We don't turn the other cheek. I can show you how to be strong. Come on, follow me. Heard you looking for a hero. Well, look up. No more running from the bad guy. I'ma stare him in the eye like, what's up? I know the journey got hard for a minute, but I ain't giving this up. Yeah, I got the heart of a champion. If I get knocked down, I get back up. We go through bad days, hard times, low pay, high crime, pathways to a life without sunshine. I'm the lifeline. With this life, I'm gonna be the pipeline. Shining in the nighttime, bet on me to swoop down. I'ma go toe to toe, already know that I'm never gonna back down. Bet on me to stand tall, I take on anything for my crew. Bet I risk it all, wicked, wicked people in the streets. Corruption in the politics and the police. It's time to raise up, take a stand against the seat. We won't take a back seat, I can show you how to be strong. Come on, follow me. Heard you looking for a hero. Well, look up. No more running from the bad guy. I'ma stare him in the eye like, what's up? I know the journey got hard for a minute, but I ain't giving this up. Yeah, I got the heart of a champion. If I get knocked down, I get back up. 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 If I get knocked down, I'ma get back up. If I get knocked down, I'ma get back up. If I get knocked down, I'ma get back up. I'ma get back up. I'ma get back up. I'ma go. Heard you looking for a hero. Well, look up. Yeah. No more running from that bad guy. Don't worry about it. I'm right here. What's up? I know that journey been hard for you. Okay. I ain't giving up. We ain't giving up. I got the heart of a champion. If I 